I readily agreed to work for the Stasi because I thought I would be doing something to defend the socialist system in which I deeply believed. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. John Tarver was born into a middle-class family in the UK. He joined the British Communist Party on his 18th birthday in 1948 because he felt the Soviet Union had made the most effective resistance to fascism. His 18 years' work as a Communist Party organiser set him apart from other Britons in the GDR and he became an informer for the Stasi. Now, if this podcast was a magazine, you wouldn't mind paying a few quid or dollars a week, so I'm asking you to support us for the bargain price of $3 a month. You will be helping to cover the show's increasing costs and keep us on the air, plus you get that sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Now, special thanks to Ian Hawkins, who has allowed me to use these audio files from his excellent documentary, which I do feature in, called My DDR T-Shirt, which will feature in the show notes. John Tarver talks openly about his personal, political and professional life in Britain and East Germany. We welcome John Tarver to our Cold War conversation. Right. Um, so, first of all, um, could you just tell me who you are and just a little bit about yourself as, a, as an introduction? Well, my name is John Tarver. I was born in Lancaster, northwest England, in March 1930. And that's interesting because I was conceived, of course, in the summer of 1929 at the height of the boom. And then I was born in March 1930 at the depth of the world economic crisis. So in those nine months, many things changed, not only inside my mother's body, but in the world at large. So that got me off to a good start, I suppose. Later, I went to a rather elite school where my father was head of maths and science. I went in the army, of course, for one and a half years, like everybody. Then I went to Oxford. I became, at the age of 18, very much involved with Communist Party work. I joined the party on my 18th birthday. And after leaving university in 1952, I wanted to become a party organiser. And the party suggested that I should get working class experience. I did that by going round the streets selling bread for the Oxford Co-op. An experience which I'm grateful for, I must say. So I did that until in 1958, I in fact did become the Communist Party organiser. The first question, as a, uh, as a Lancastrian here yeah. in um, Berlin, just yeah. off Karl Marx Alley, um, how, did you, how did you get here? Well, yeah, <laughs> well that again is bound up very closely with my personal and political lives, in equal proportion I would say. I married in 1951 and had a son in 1953 
who is now a very successful organizer for the Teachers' Trade Union and a Labour City Councillor for the City of Oxford and so forth. And I was happily married, I must say. But as time went on, of course, one got other interests, which took one away from the marriage more and more, especially in my political activities. In 1970, I was invited to come to the German Democratic Republic, the GDR, to join a summer course which was trying to improve the level of English teaching by the teachers of English language in GDR schools. These were, of course, 90% ladies, and I became involved with one or two of them. And finally, in 1975, I decided to change my life and come to live in the GDR and marry my second wife, which meant, of course, divorcing my first one. That was very painful for me. But I said just now, these things were inextricably linked, my personal and my political lives. In 1968, the Soviet Union, as I would see it now, invaded Czechoslovakia, the so-called intervention, and this presented the Communist Party of Great Britain with a very difficult situation indeed. In fact, there was a split, and I took the side of the Soviet Union. I thought the action of the Soviet Union and its allies, including the GDR, was in defence of socialism. But the great majority of the Communist Party members took the opposite point of view. Already there had been signs that the leadership of the Communist Party was moving towards what was then called Euro-Communism, although they themselves refused to adopt that terminology. And so it was no surprise to some of us that when this break came in 1968, we formed a kind of bloc. I say the great majority, but in point of fact, at the Congress of the Party in 1969, where these things were debated, there was only a majority of five against two, so to speak. <laughs> it's difficult to turn that into percentage, but for every five votes in favour of the official line, there were two votes in favour of our line, defending the action of the Soviet Union. Things went on until finally in 1977, by which time I was already living in the German Democratic Republic, of course, there was a formal split, and the so-called New Communist Party was formed with me as a founder member. So to get back to my divorce and so on, in February 1976 I came to live in on East Berlin. I nearly said Ostberlin. <laughs> and this was the culmination then of a decline, if you like, in the warmth of my relationship to my first wife and all these political problems. The, the two were side by side? They were, as I say, inextricably linked. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't like to give either side the preeminence. <laughs> so why, why GDR rather than another of these? Oh, because I had, as I said, been visiting the GDR since 1970. I came in 72, 74 and met these ladies and decided that one was a very suitable partner for me, as I thought, and I still think so. We had a child, but then later we got divorced as well. <laughs> yeah, and so there was no question of going to any other country. So you worked um, as 
as, as you mentioned earlier, a, a reader or a, an assistant professor. You could call it that, the Americans would say assistant professor, yes. Right. And that was at one of the universities? At Potsdam University. Potsdam University, that's right. And I was there until the very end, when it was more or less taken over by the West Germans in 1990. And so I saw the red light, and I found a job teaching English for a private school, but that too was closed down. But by that time, of course, I was nearing pension age. In 1995, I began to get my pension. You mentioned before that you, you worked in some capacity for the Stasi for something like 10 years. 10 years exactly, yes, right. from 1980 to 1990. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell me something about what, what kind of capacity that, that was? Yes, well, it was obviously a very low-ranking capacity. <laughs> they didn't tell me if I should be called a lance corporal or a second lieutenant. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the main thing they were interested in was, of course, my observing the activities of all the other British and American people living in the GDR. Now, I should say here that I was appointed secretary of our organization, at the end of 1976, in other words, after a few months living here. And that was officially recognized. Well, all such organizations had to be officially recognized by the GDR authorities, or they were considered illegal. But I was perfectly happy with that, and we had regular meetings at the Ministry of Higher Education. At the most, there were between 70 and 80 such people living in the GDR usually only about half as many. Ten or twelve of those, not more, belonged to a hard core of Communist Party members, and we could live here permanently. All the others, with a very few exceptions for special reasons, came on two-year contracts. They were normally university graduates. Some of them hadn't been able to find work in West Germany, <laughs> and so they took the option of the East. But they did good jobs, I would say. And then, after two years, an experience for them, and also an interesting experience for the GDR students, they went home again. Their contracts were not extended. It's obvious why this was done. The GDR authorities did not want these people to become centres of any kind of resistance movement, either intellectual or practical. And, you know, there are some funny stories that could be told. Perhaps I'll tell one, shall I? Yeah, why not? <laughs> there was an American lady who came over to teach at the University of Jena. And one of her students was an attractive young man about her own age. Here I should add that the male students were always older than the female, because to be a GDR teacher you had to serve for three years in the so-called National People's Army of the GDR. In other words, to be trained as an officer. So after three years, you were supposed to be an example to your school pupils of a good socialist citizen. So he was about the same age as she was, and they fell in love, which I suppose can't be criticised. Now, the odd point is that he very closely resembled a male British colleague, also at Yenna University. Lo and behold, one day this happened. She went to the room of this male colleague, found his passport, took it, and that same afternoon crossed the border with her boyfriend. 
The GDR guard accepted his photograph as realistic because he looked like it. And after all, the guards had a boring time. Next day, she posted the passport back. Of course, the GDR police thought maybe this was all a put-up job that the (laughs) Englishman voluntarily lent, in inverted commas, his passport so that this young German gentleman could get out. However, that was not proven. So other things like that went on, but that is probably the most dramatic example. Did you become uh, an East German citizen? No, I didn't. No, so no. You were still a Never. Citizen. No, in fact, that was very important because it meant that I could travel freely. That was important for the Stasi. I could go to any other country. I didn't actually go to any countries except West Germany and Great Britain. You mentioned your, your, your first marriage and your family. Yeah. Um, you mentioned outside about um, your interest in football and things. Oh, that's quite true, yes. Well, so I you... used to play. I'm a qualified referee, actually, oh, but right. only up to the age of 18. Right. I know, one of those, yeah. So how, how did you get on with um, trying to adjust to the, to the new distance between you know, your family, maybe children from your first yes. marriage, um, not being able to mm-hmm. follow the football and things like that, or were you able to follow? That them? wasn't easy at all. Well, of course, I could follow football on BBC, <laughs> but only follow it, not actually watch it. No, it was a hard wrench to leave my first wife, whom I had truly loved, I might say, if that doesn't sound too sentimental. And my son, of course, rather rejected me for what I had done for a few years. Later, we came closer together again. It wasn't altogether easy, no. Settling in the GDR was not problematic. I must say quite openly that we received certain privileges. We were paid exactly the same salaries as the GDR colleagues, but we could travel freely to West Berlin. We had something called a multi-entry visa. And so I wrote an article not long ago for a journal called Ex Berliner entitled Twice a Week Through the Wall, because I was one of those people who went through the wall on average twice a week. I mean, sometimes once, sometimes three times. Partly to go shopping and partly to carry out operations of the Stasi. They were always interested in making contact with people in the West who might be useful for example, I made contact with a man who was a waiter at the English Officers Club, or British, I should say. And even his own wife, another British person, was not allowed to enter the club, so there wasn't much chance that I could get in. But he said a few things which I reported, things of no importance. The Stasi, you must understand, was an organization interested in amassing the greatest possible quantity of information. They couldn't always process it. Since then, the Stasi archives have been opened, and it's become quite clear that the mass of material there couldn't possibly be analyzed, even by a thousand people, and they only had a few hundred working on the archives, of course. However, this gave an impression of complete control. So, how did the Stasi approach you? Very interesting. I came in 1976, and at the very beginning of 1980, January, I was told that I must go to what they called an entry camp. Yeah, that'll do, anyway. Aufnahmelager. 
And that was in a town called Furstenwalder, which is about 30 or 40 kilometers east of Berlin, I should say, speaking offhand. I had to stay there, together with a number of other people who wanted to come to live in the GDR, mainly to get married to GDR girls they had met. While there, I was approached by an officer of the Stasi, whom I must say was an extremely well-educated and charming man, about my age, beautifully mannered, a cultivated gentleman. (laughs) And he gradually involved me in conversation, and when he came to the point, I readily agreed to work for the Stasi, because I thought I would be doing something to defend the socialist system in which I deeply believed. So it was conviction that the approach came from the Stasi. I didn't volunteer. Could I be in the Stasi? No, it wasn't like that. <laughs> so what kind of things... You mentioned about going to West Berlin and they were interested in make, making contacts with yeah. West, West Berliners. Um, but what kind of activities were you, were you actually involved? Would that just mean Very few. Yeah, trying to socialise and to find information. Yeah. I mean, down there at what's it called, Tempelhof Airport, there were many Americans, and they used to frequent certain pubs. And part of my work was to go into these pubs and get into conversation with these Americans and try to pick up titbits, or the Yanks would say tidbits, of information. I tried my best, but in my opinion it amounted to almost nothing. The information was worthless. Yeah, and then they sometimes sent me out to garden parties in peculiar places, down in Vanze and stuff, I remember, because they feared that some East German intellectuals, and I must point out here that some had the freedom to travel, depending on their positions, that some East German intellectuals were being invited to these parties and might become compromised or even willingly carry out socialist activities. Apart from getting a few free drinks, it was a waste of my time. In fact, I found the whole lot very boring. <laughs> so how did you record the information then? Was it just talking to them and then you'd write No, no, I was not allowed to write anything down. That was strictly forbidden. It depended on interviews, quite often on the same day, or if not the following day, for obvious reasons. Memory. Yeah, so that was how it was done. And was that as a, a paid informant? Or? Oh, it was very well paid. Right. <laughs> that was one of the main reasons for carrying on from 1980 to 1990. In fact, speaking of 1990, at the very end, I had said goodbye to my leading officer, and we had fixed a date, but it all looked very dicey. I mean, the GDR was falling to pieces. The wall was down two or three months before. I was at a pub the moment it came down. And there was no jubilation, incidentally. That was an East German pub, and most of the people took it for granted that sooner or later the wall would come down. You must remember, since the summer, there had been constant talk about the collapse of the wall. But anyway, to get back to my point, and so I dutifully went along on this day in January 1990, Only my leading officer did not come. So I knew then the game is up. (laughs) But I would have got some money. Yeah, we were well remunerated for our meagre services. (laughs) We got GDR money and from time to time West money. 
partly because they sent us to the West, but partly just as a bonus. In fact, I remember meeting a rather higher official. He came to see us one day, the boss of my leading officer, and he said, well, if you can get such and such a person, this waiter at the British Officers Club, by the way, if you can get him to cooperate, there will be no end to the money. Of course, he was boasting, but that's what he said. <laughs> so the people that you'd be asked to, to try and contact would be potential um, well, allies, let's call them, in, in Only. The West, that's right, yeah. Or, or some of the English-speaking members of the the group that you were appointed secretary of. No, we must be careful about that. They didn't want me to try to recruit any of them for the Stasi. Definitely not. But they wanted complete information, as comprehensive as possible. Information about what they were doing and what they were thinking. I found that rather abhorrent. And I very often toned down my reports. That's no self-defence, because what I did was bad enough. <laughs> well... But I would say, no, he said nothing much. And actually the man had said, isn't this a horrible society or something, you know? <laughs> so from, from your point of view, as, as a, a principle of, of working for the Stasi, um, I suppose you'd call that as a Stasi agent, I suppose. Well, I was, yeah. yeah. They called it unofficial member or worker. In effect, I'm a mitarbeiter, usually known as EM, that is IM, of course, yeah. And so you would, um, from your point of view, that was to try and defend the integrity of, of the socialist state. It was a, a political yes. ideal that you wanted to maintain by, by collecting this information. That's correct. You could say the basic motivation was political idealism. Right until the very end, and that was true of my partner as well, my third wife, I was convinced, as she was, that socialism could be reformed along the lines of Gorbachev. Before, we had supported socialism as it was, what they called in the GDR, real existing socialism. We had been satisfied. On this point, you must bear in mind that living standards in East Berlin were the highest in the whole of the socialist world. For the average person, even higher than in Moscow. Of course, there were privileged people in Moscow too, but for the average person, in East Berlin were the highest living standards. But then we, of course, were interested in more democracy, and when Gorbachev introduced his reform program, we thought this would be implemented. My third wife, just mentioned, put up some of Gorbachev's proposals on the wall of the Marxist-Leninist department where she worked. She was a lecturer in Marxism-Leninism, having written her doctorate in that field. Next day, it had been removed. With no word to her, no question, <laughs> the chief of that department had simply taken it down. Well, that kind of thing, of course, depresses a person. You could say there was very little freedom of discussion. Did you ever have any qualms, if you like, or any... when you were asked to to meet maybe a, a particular person or um, when, when the, the, the Stasi would ask you for a certain kind of information for a certain kind of person, did you ever wonder, well, this doesn't really fit into to those political ideals, this, this just seems pointless or meagre as you described it all? Yeah. 
Yes, to some extent I had. But as a trained political organiser for many years in Britain and so on, I used to tell myself, I'm sorry to confess it now, but I must, Johnny, you don't understand. The others know better. The ones higher up, they understand the purpose of what we're doing. You must try to fit in. So in that way, my qualms, as you rightly call them, were suppressed. On the other hand, I had grave doubts. One person I would say I persecuted, though we never knew it, was a man who was a colleague of mine at Potsdam University, and they wanted me to find out everything possible about him, for example, when he was going on holiday. Now, why did they want to know that? I can tell you. Because then a special agent would go, with a special key equipment in the middle of the night, enter his flat. They were brilliant people. They wouldn't disturb anything, but they would photograph everything and so forth. They more or less, not completely, admitted that. And I thought this man was very unimportant and not dangerous at all. On the other hand, he had admitted to me maintaining contact with an old school friend who had gone to live in West Berlin. So this rather soothed my troubled conscience that maybe he was all the time playing a double game. <laughs> Who knows? So, so what, was it some kind of... Um, and I'm not trying to put words into your mouth here, so... No, no. Um, but was it a, a kind of absolute faith in, in the political ideals? And if someone was higher up in the organisation than you were, if they were asking you to do that, well, then it was... It had some kind of... It, it was right or righteous in some way. Is that how you describe some of the, your feelings towards what you did? Well, in one word, yes. This came from a system called democratic centralism, which was introduced by Lenin, along with what he called the party of the new type, which had to have this democratic centralism, in which, to quote word for word, the lower organs were subordinate to the higher organs. I mean, I myself can remember times when I was a district secretary in Great Britain, a function I held for 18 years, when I was at a meeting and said something, and then another member of the party said something different. And I took that person on one side later, I should say comrade, and said, look, comrade, when you hear what I say, don't say something different. Because they should have realised that I was speaking on behalf of the party. <laughs> at my level. And correspondingly, when I went to a national meeting, if one of the top leaders of the party said something, I nodded my head, even if I didn't agree with him. I suppose with the nature of, of your activities, because you were trying to attract people who were sympathetic, or trying to get contacts in the West, um, you weren't necessarily informing on East Germans to, to the Stasi. That wasn't really your function. No, 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 no. Was was any of the information that you gave? Uh, you probably won't be able to answer this absolutely, but do you know how the information was used, or do you know how the information you gave may have affected the lives of those that you informed from? Well, as far as I know, in some cases, it probably prevented people getting promoted in their jobs. And I can say more not talking about East Germans, but there were a certain number of British people who wanted to come to live in the GDR, just as I had wanted to. 
In many cases, these were people who had rather failed in life, in Britain in one way or the other, or maybe they had fallen foul of the leaders of the Communist Party. I interviewed three or four of these people. I could tell you exactly, but I won't. And in at least three cases, I gave a negative report, which meant, of course, that they were not allowed to come to live in the GDR. In that way, I either damaged their lives or saved their lives, <laughs> depending on your point of view. They were very upset at the time. But I always said, it's not my decision, because it wasn't. The decision came from the GDR authorities. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I recommended that they should not be invited to live in the GDR. I mean, there were quite good reasons. I mean, the General Secretary of the Party in Britain, the person, of course, I knew very well, I consulted him, and he said, well, I wouldn't take those two, the man because of alcoholism, the woman because of promiscuity. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get an idea of, of, um, of the, the consequences of, of this kind of system. Very limited. And... Well, from my point of view, from, from, from my activity. Yeah. Um, but now this is a very, very clumsy parallel or comparison right. I'm going to draw, so just bear with me. Um, for example, some of the guards of concentration camps were, um, they would say that they're following orders. Yeah. And after the war, it was kind of, um, this, I can't remember which point was, it was, kind of decided that to say that you were following orders wasn't sufficient That's um, true. Mm-hmm. excuse or, or justification exactly. for, yeah, yeah. For, for an act of, you know, whatever it would be. Um, and as I say, I'm not trying to compare you to a, a concentration camp guard, but in, in a way it is a similar, um, you're following orders or you, you fought because you believed in these people and, and in a way it is a similar... Can you see the, the point I'm trying to Of make? course I can, and yeah. I've thought about it hundreds of times. Now I've returned to my faith in the Christian Catholic Church, by the way. Of course I've thought about this, and I can't disagree with you. I mean, following orders, yes. After the Nuremberg trial, of course, it was pointed out that it's no excuse if you're doing something which is flagrantly in violation of human rights. The same argument came up in the Vietnam War with the behaviour of many American officers and such. All one can say is that one follows convictions too blindly. And that is why democracy fundamentally is the only good system, where at least you're allowed the possibility of saying, no, I won't do that. 
You can kick me around if you like. I'll leave my job, but at least you won't put me in prison because we live in a free country. I wouldn't have been put in prison either, of course, but I can tell you one thing. I would have been asked to leave the GDR. Funny story. Once I was offered a better job at Leipzig University. So I went to my professor at Potsdam and he said, Look, Comrade Tarver, it's quite clear you signed a contract to work at Potsdam University. Here in the GDR, we have freedom. You are free either to work here, as you guaranteed, or to return to Britain. There was no question of going to Leipzig. He wanted me, because of my ability, I would say, to stay in his university. <laughs> the interview did yesterday at the Stars Museum, the, the person there, Stefan, referred to a number of people, for example, a West German who um, was a communist in West Germany, and he moved to East Germany and became a, a popular singer-songwriter. Oh. Um, I can't remember the name, unfortunately. I probably know it, but never mind. Um, but at some point... His political ideals were, were kind of compromised by, yeah. by what he saw, mm. and some of his songs became a little bit more critical. And when he uh, held some performances in the West, they decided they wouldn't let him back in again. Were, were there any points in your time in, in East Germany where you felt your, your socialist ideals were compromised by the, the official line of the party? Well... First of all, I suspect you're talking about a man called Wolf Biermann. Yes. Who yes, was actually an East German-born person. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, he did exactly what you've said. Right. And finally, he went on one of his many tours to the West, and they didn't allow him back in. I didn't feel such a deep distress, I must say. And neither did the people I was mixing with. We rather accepted what we were getting, because, of course, you must remember, we thought we were going in the right direction. And in many ways, it seemed so. As I said a few minutes ago, living standards were high, at least in East Berlin, not so high in the provinces. But the highest living standards in the whole socialist camp, as we called it, were to be found here. And you could see the housing program, for example, which really did bring enormous benefits to millions of people even though the flats were, and still are, rather small, like the one I'm sitting in now. But no, we felt that we were going forward in the right direction. You see, there was a cult of the future, that we lived in a planned economy, and that the plans for the future would be realised, and therefore life would get better and better. There's a famous story about some Soviet professors who were being interviewed by American professors, and they were asked about the past, what happened in the 1930s, under Stalin, with the show trials and so on. And one professor, who must have been a bit of a wit, he said, oh, you can ask questions about that. With us, the past is always uncertain. Only the future is certain. <laughs> and this was the belief that we were going to build communism. With, for example, the, the offer for Leipzig University, yeah, that's um, right. was that your first experience, or was obviously it was a... First and last. Yeah. But that was the first and last experience, maybe, of, of a time where you thought, ah, yeah. I'm, I'm not, you know, my freedom is restricted. In oh, definitely, but I saw it in a personal way, you see. I didn't generalise to thinking that this is a common experience of thousands of people like me. No, no, I thought each case was individual. Yes, I did. 
being able to travel to the west and yeah. and as you say through the through the wall twice a week. <laughs> That's right. Um, in terms of a mentality or of a, of a how you'd feel on a week to week basis, having that freedom or not having that freedom would would have a significant impact on on someone. For you, you would always be able to. Mm. And as you say, you, you didn't become a, a a DDR citizen because you oh, no. to. I so, didn't want to, and they didn't want me to. Yeah. But that would make a, a significant difference in your experience as a as a British person living in Berlin mm. to an, an East Berliner who doesn't have the option to to travel. What kind of what kind of differences do you think that would would make on a on a day to day, week to week, year to year basis that the restrictions that they had weren't applied to you? And mm. does that distort your view of a place? Do you think in any way? Well, some of them, of course, had permission to go because they were coming out research and they needed to study documents and books and so forth in West German libraries. So they went, of course, having got special permission first, whereas I didn't need any special permission with my multi-entry visa. Referring to myself, I would say it might have made a difference had I been going back to an English-speaking city. But as it was, I was just going from one half of German-speaking Berlin to the other half. <laughs> so, to me, it was just an afternoon's outing, you know. But that, for you, that's right, it's an out, afternoon's outing to another part of the city. Yeah. But for other, I got the night very well. For, for other Berliners, East Berliners, it, oh, yeah. the, it wasn't even on the map, it would be a blank space on a... Well, to some extent, but don't forget that pensioners were free to travel. They had no restriction. As long as they had their proper pension card in their pockets, age of 65 or 60 for women, whatever it was, they could travel. By the way, the GDR wasn't too sorry if they stayed in the West, <laughs> because it saved paying the pensions. But what they normally did was to collect all possible West money, and there were ways of getting West money, from their friends and neighbours, go to West Berlin, buy goods, bring them back, and probably sell them at a profit. This sort of thing went on. I mean, it was quite funny sometimes on the S-Bahn when you got into West Berlin and went off from Friedrichstrasse or somewhere like that. And sometimes police, West German police, raced onto the train and attacked people who had simply gone from West Berlin to the border shops where they could buy, much cheaper of course, East German products, take them back and, as I just said, sell them at a good profit. If they didn't have tickets to take them into the GDR, in other words, if they didn't have the permission, the visas, to enter the GDR, then the West German police were allowed to confiscate all they had. And I saw this with my own eyes. That was rather harsh, I must say. And people were screaming and saying things like Nazis and so on. <laughs> but it went on, this kind of trade. In other words, smuggled the goods. Still, it's a rather small point. Um, you mentioned that you've thought a lot about, um, well, you, your whole time in East, East Germany, but also your, your, um, the work that you did for the Stasi. And yeah. I suppose you've, you've had lots of time to reflect on some of these things. And, well, I have, yeah. You know, and, and just <laughs> ask what it means and, and things like yeah. that, good and, good and bad. I'm, I'm not asking for... Um, you know, reasons or condemnation or justification, but what, what has come out of, of those reflections now? 
I would use the word sorrow. In point of fact, I'm writing an article at the moment called Look Back in Sorrow. <laughs> Not in anger, but in sorrow. Yeah, I mean, deep regret at a sort of wasted life. I suppose I've done some useful things, but in principle my life was wasted through my own decisions. And as I said some minutes ago, but I'll expand on it, I have returned to my roots in the Roman Catholic Church. I was born in that long strip of West Lancashire, which is predominantly, although by no means exclusively, Roman Catholic, going down from the north of Lancashire to Liverpool, which is a centre of Catholicism. And in my birthplace, Lancaster, there was, and I suppose is, a Catholic cathedral, no Protestant cathedral. And so I was brought up in a strict Christian family. Sunday, of course, was obligatory, church going, and I was perfectly happy. And then I found the enchantment of communism, like many people in the Second World War. I was only 15 when it ended, but impressionable teenager, you know. And very many people went left-wing at that time. And then after this collapse of socialism, 1989 and so forth, I was in fact a member of the local city council. I was not a member of this successor party of the Socialist Unity Party called the PDS, but my wife at that time, my third wife, was. She soon changed and so did I, because she saw that they were putting themselves in a dead end. Now, by the way, just in passing, they've improved their policies a lot and become much more democratic and liberal. So, step by step, and it took about four years, I found my way back to my church. Now, as I've said a hundred times to people, if you think that I am a person who wants a strong system of values and beliefs, then you are right. I am such a person. I like to have a strong system of values and beliefs. In this flat, you can now see two or three crosses and pictures of the Virgin Mary, our Holy Mother. Years ago, you could have seen pictures of Lenin and Stalin. <laughs> no, I don't make any apology for that. In fact, I believe it's better for people to have a strong value system. It holds you together. <laughs> but of course, I was on the wrong side. And as I said, I look back in sorrow. <laughs> so... The, the sense of sorrow that you have yeah. is, is rooted in the fact that you feel maybe you were kind of batting for the wrong side. Completely. Oh, yeah. so, so nothing to do I was with batting for Yorkshire, not for Lancashire. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't about... Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't that you found out information about GDR that you didn't know at the no, time. No, not really, no. It was a matter that. of conviction. Yeah. And you see, something else, because it seems relevant. I disagree with those people who say, communism, yeah, the theory was good, but it went wrong in practice. I reckon to be a sort of theoretical person, I don't know, I'm not really good. <laughs> but I believe the theory was wrong from the very beginning. I believe now the Communist Manifesto was wrong. I don't want to use too much jargon. <laughs> But ideas which are fairly well known, like the materialist conception of history, dictatorship of the proletariat, I believe these are fundamentally stupid ideas. <laughs> Only on the Lenin and much more on the Stalin, it got worse. But I do believe it was wrong from the beginning. It was, if you like, an aberration of history. I mean, Marx didn't come from nowhere. 
Marx built on Hegel and earlier philosophers, and Adam Smith for that matter, the British economist, Scottish really, that even so, it was wrong, it was muddle-headed. So was there a particular point, was it, where you just suddenly thought, where there was a switch in your convictions, or did it take place over a while? Well, you put very nice questions. I had been moving away from communist ideas, like my third wife, to mention her again, because I want to praise her, she's such a fine person. I'd been moving away from the year 1991 onwards. But in 1994, I think it was, I was taken by another lady, don't get the wrong idea, but I was taken by another lady, a Polish lady, where 95% of people are Catholic, into the Roman Catholic Cathedral, St. Hedwig's. And then it hit me, I'm not saying like Saul on the road to Damascus, <laughs> nothing so dramatic, but I thought, I'm so at peace here. And this is how it began when I was a small boy going with my mother to church. I don't know when it was. I was probably three years old. <laughs> and I thought, this is it. I'm coming back to it. A spirituality. I don't need to believe in something which is only man-made. But it's also something which is God-made. And if you prefer, made by a supreme being. Well, that's a... Obviously, that's a significant difference between between the two, that one is absolutely man-made, yeah. and the other one, as you say, is, is I think so, otherworldly, yeah. if you like. That's right. Um, yeah. But some people draw comparisons to religion and socialism in, in a kind of blind blind belief. Well, I did, having a strong yeah. belief system. Yeah, yeah. I want that. Um, yeah. So there are, there are similarities, I suppose there are just similarities in belief systems. Oh, there are. Yeah, I don't believe in these caricatures, you know, that Karl Marx was someone like Moses and Lenin was someone like Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no. No, well, I, I think that's that. absurd, to be honest. So, but it is interesting that you you switch convictions, because um, some people might say, and again, I'm not expressing this view, it's only to... Yes, I understand. Um, that um, some people use belief systems as a kind of replacement family, if you like, or a replacement father figure or mother figure. Um, mm. and, and in switching from one conviction to another, mm. you're, you're switching convictions, but you're actually, it's the same kind of behaviour, it's the same modes of behaviour, if you like. Sub yeah. Subscribing to different things, but this, the same techniques to reassure you and to, to try and find some kind of happiness. But have well, you ever thought? Have you ever questioned the ideas of convictions in that way? Have you ever thought, well, no, I'm, I'm just going to live my life. I'm in this apartment, mm. and I'll try and live as well as I can. I won't try and hurt anyone. Or... Yeah, not much. I think that people are largely determined genetically. We have our psychological structures. Yeah, and so I respected my parents, I really did, and there was good reason to. They were such fine people, and very successful too. 
and I respected the priests when I was young, and then later on I respected the higher party organizers, although we often had quarrels. I indicated the big quarrel around the year 1968, the intervention in Czechoslovakia. I was never afraid to put my point of view, and the leaders of the party said they respected me for that. It was called principled debate. Now, there's a nice word for you. <laughs> there were differences, a friend of mine said, principled differences. He thought that would be put on his tombstone. <laughs> and now I respect the priests again, but not uncritically. However, I do believe that we can find our place in life, and that depends on our relationship to other members of society, all other members. Family has always been extremely important to me. I won't tell you how much money I'm paying at the moment for three children, but, <laughs> but I do it willingly. I didn't say happily, <laughs> but willingly, and we'll go on doing so, willingly. <laughs> I think it's, it is interesting that you, the conviction was switched after the collapse of the GDR. Events. Well, I was going to say, do you think that if the GDR would have continued another five years, you, your switch of conviction would have been put off a little bit? Like, would you have carried oh, on? Oh, I'm sure. I'm quite sure you're right. Yeah. We were bound up with the system. Yeah. There's an expression in German, which I'll try to put in English, system near, to be near to the system. And my third wife and me, we were. We were completely embedded in the system. <laughs> and felt happy with it. So was there an element or a degree of freedom of thought, if you like, that was you were you enjoyed after the wall came down that that facilitated yes. such convictions? Oh, that's quite true. Again, a very clever question. Yes, one felt free. One felt one had to think again because obviously the experiment had failed. We all knew it was an experiment, even the Soviet experiment that went on for 70 years, we still knew it was basically an experiment to make a new society. People talked about the new Soviet man, <laughs> such expressions which I find rather comical today. In point of fact, the Soviet men were no different to the Chinese men or the Peruvian men for that matter. <laughs> I find it, I, I sometimes find myself a little confused with the reference to it as an experiment because yeah. um, I, I sometimes think of an experiment as a, a, as a kind of test case, but you talk about the experiment as a, a kind of working progress. Yes, I do. Um, yeah. I think of an experiment as a kind of limited thing, see what happens when you do this, but it was more as time went on, you would try different things that would result in things that would cause responses to that. So it wasn't a limited experiment, well, it was a constant progressing yeah. experiment. Is that how you Again, it? what an interesting point. Because we learn at school that an experiment is something which can be repeated under the same conditions and will produce the same result. But we thought more or less like that, that if you could carry out a, such a so-called socialist revolution in Nicaragua, you would get a certain result. And then, if you did that in Guatemala, you would get a similar result, as it happened in Cuba before. There was this feeling, and of course it left out the national factor to a large extent at least. Obviously, these are very difficult questions, but I would accept your point of view that we did have this feeling, 
if we can apply the basic principles of Marxism-Leninism to this society and then to that society, we will probably produce a similar result. Now I don't think like that. Well, something that definitely Stasi Museum yesterday mentioned was that um, he has a problem with this um, this view of it being an experiment. That oh, good. Because he was saying that he, he didn't, you know, it was never referred to as an experiment. Oh no, certainly not. <laughs> so um, he sees it as a kind of justification or, right. or a, a revision of, of the thinking behind it. Hmm. I mean, is that, how do you, what do you think of that? And does that mean to you that it, it debases the whole experiment argument? Or, I think he thought of it as an excuse now that it failed and people call it an experiment. Hmm. Well, it was given a fair chance, let's put it that way. So, if an experiment is defined in the way I just did, that it should be possible of repetition, then I suppose one can see that it was an excuse, yes. But as you said, we didn't use the term experiment. We thought we were building something step by step, block by block. That, of course, is not at all the same thing as experimenting. Um, something you touched on earlier, um, that you, you kind of acknowledge that part of um, working for the stars and part of being a um, a, a citizen, I don't mean a, a national, I know, someone yeah. living here, a resident, yeah. a resident <laughs> um, was to, to say the right things even if you didn't think it. Um, mm. Now, I, I can understand if you are trying to build block by block mm. a, a socialist or communist state, it means that it isn't just um, economics, it's, it's oh, no. thought. And it's very it's much so. and ideology yeah. and things like this. Yeah, I mean. And so, well, revolutionary vi vigilance is what <laughs> Stefan used that term to say that it. Did he? Sometimes it was <laughs> yeah. described as this, but it oh, definitely. wasn't. Oh, yeah. definitely. It wasn't, though. No, no. Um, because it kind of defies revolutionary, vigi revolutionary vigilance if you can just say what you're supposed to say but still hold some. Beliefs, even for yourself as a Stasi agent or something. Well, it does. I mean, there are some horrible stories which mainly came from the earlier years, where if people said something a little bit off the line, they were subjected to harassment. I'm not saying it was like under Stalin in the 1930s, because it certainly was not, but they were called in for discussion after discussion in a fairly friendly way. But, comrade, now do you understand? Now do you see where you were wrong, etc., etc. And there's a story <laughs> about a member who later became a professor in the GDR who attended one of his early meetings as a young man, 20 years old or so, and had forgotten to bring his party card with him. And there were about 20 people in the room, and one after the other, the chairman asked them to stand up and say what they thought about this comrade. And one after the other had to say, well, I think that's terrible to forget such a thing. The most important thing in your pocket is always your party card. Or the most important thing in your life, more important than your life, is the party card, etc., etc. And the poor man wasn't in tears, but he had to accept this. Later, one or two of them, older than him, said to him, 
Don't worry, we had to say it. <laughs> could you could you tell me a little bit about when the the wall came down? Um, oh yes, a, a little bit about what led up to it, and well, of course, this is well documented. There were thousands of people beginning in August who were getting out of the GDR through Hungary because Hungary opened the border to Austria and they were streaming through. And then there were rather pathetic attempts by the GDR leadership to control this and they allowed certain trains to go out to West Germany on the very strictly controlled conditions. But this went wrong because people flooded, for example, into Dresden railway station and there were horrifying scenes because the trains couldn't move, the people were on the lines and the people scrambled into the compartments, etc, etc. Of course, you can't expect me to remember the exact details now, after 16 years, nearly. But they got out that way. And so everything was falling to pieces. And then a ray of hope came when on the 7th of October, the GDR National Day, Gorbachev did attend the celebrations. Some people thought he wouldn't come. And that's when he made his famous remark that people who don't keep up with history get punished for it. <laughs> and, you know, within a month, everything had fallen apart after that. Eric Honecker had to resign. The man who succeeded him, Egon Krentz, was not of the same caliber, not really any type of world leader. And he couldn't cope with the situation. And so, of course, the war came down. But again, everybody knows the whole story, that the man in charge of the Berlin local government, a man called Gunter Schabowski, who is now, by the way, in the Christian Democratic Party as an old man, a rather ironic twist to history, he obviously had many more doubts than I had at that time about the viability of GDR socialism. He was not confused exactly, but feeling weaker and weaker. And when he was asked, well, when will the wall come down? He answered, well, now, yes, yes, you can go to West Berlin now. And people did that very minute. And the guards' officers, of course, telephoned frantically the headquarters. Well, the mayor of Berlin has just said so, so nobody knew what to do. I had just had a meeting with my leading officer, by the way. I went to a pub, as I would do, obviously, when the news came through on the radio. And I think I said some time ago that people there took it very calmly. They weren't shocked. But people who were more politically active, they got over to West Berlin as fast as they could, <laughs> just to see what it was like. And they were greeted, of course, with champagne, etc., etc. Everybody was very careful. Nobody wanted violence. They didn't want dead bodies. Oh, no, no. There would be enough dead bodies on the wall, of course. <laughs> so, obviously, you could travel anyway, but did you feel any sense of wanting to be at at one of the checkpoints, just for a sense of occasion, just because... This we went soon after. I can't say exactly when, but my third wife and me... My wife, I should say, for God's sake. <laughs> That's rather insulting. <laughs> we had two children. My wife and me, we went uh, quite soon, but I can't say if it was next day or the day after that. She hadn't been, of course, to West Berlin. Although she had travelled to one or two capitalist countries, like Austria, for instance because she was such a loyal party member. They were allowed to do this sort of thing on the supervision. Well, she was sort of one of the supervisors. <laughs> How did you feel as 
someone who still subscribed to those beliefs when you, when you saw East Berliners when they let them through the checkpoints um, and they're in tears and they obviously this this sense of joyfulness and some of the Berliners have, have asked about it not video but asked they said it was an incredible night it was like no other night in their lives how did you feel about that beginning to feel the failure of this experiment as, as we well, I began to feel the failure, certainly, but it was no surprise. We'd been seeing it coming for months, not just weeks, but as I said, from August. I mean, I was leader of a summer course, as I always was, for the GDR teachers of English down in a town called Stickow, which is not so far from West Germany. And in August, people were saying, well, we don't know what's going to happen and I used to attend all the meetings of their party members because I led the course. And party members were openly saying, well, I don't know if I'm going to stay in the party or not. My brother has left the party, things like that. I remember it so vividly. And very few of the stalwart party members had the courage, if you will, to speak up and say, we must keep on going. They didn't. They kept quiet. So there was this feeling of dissidence. And of course, as I needn't say, it reached its height in Leipzig, where there were these Monday demonstrations. I remember a leading party member coming back to Potsdam after visiting Leipzig with his head more or less in his hands, saying, there's a counter-revolutionary atmosphere. Counter-revolutionary. Interesting, because there never had been a revolution to start the GDR. <laughs> Not like even in Czechoslovakia, to some degree. It had been imposed under the Soviet occupation zone and the forcible amalgamation of the Social Democrats with the Communists. Well, I think that's well known. So we weren't dismayed, no, but it was all a bit of a shock. Yeah. It depended, of course, on your political experience. If you were rather experienced like me, then you could take it on board gradually. By the way, don't forget I was 59 years old with all this political experience since the age of 13 or 14. <laughs> yeah. But also, don't run away with the idea that the great majority of East Berliners were wildly enthusiastic. They weren't. There was a vocal minority. They were. But the great majority were waiting, wondering what was going to happen. No question about that, by the way. That I can say definitely. Um, when, you, when you said that you when you'd say to yourself, Johnny, you don't understand, you know. Yeah, I used to think that, yeah. <laughs> when you saw, after the war came down, or uh, during this process of, of collapse, if you mm. like, when you saw some of these people that you did hold in such high esteem, mm. was was that a factor of, of chipping away, as these people oh, kind of didn't... Absolutely. Um, ...didn't stick up for what you, you felt, that they, they kind of just deserted it? it was, well, you're right. I mean, we have the conception that communists were sort of heroic people. That's the kind of image that Joseph Stalin tried to create. He said after Lenin's death, when he made an important speech, communists are people of a special mould. <laughs> it made you feel somehow bigger. <laughs> I'm laughing. It didn't really make you feel so much like that. But it was, of course, a false formulation, because the party tried to recruit members did it mean that as soon as they became members, they became of a special mould? 
Or did it mean they had to be trained for a long time, so-called cadres? Well, of course, it was a formulation meant to inspire people with the idea that once you were in this special category, then you were defined for life. You were a person of a special mold, and you would go on fighting for the cause of the working class. As Rosa Luxemburg said very famously, when Lenin first put all this forward about 1916-1917, she said, I am afraid that the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, good in itself, I mean, she was still very loyal to Marxism, will mean a dictatorship of the most capable, the most dedicated, the most hard-working comrades. They will decide everything. And how right she turned out to be. <laughs> she didn't live to see it, poor kid. So bit by bit, you, yeah. did, you did lose well, yes, it was, faith you know, and belief in, in... I still believe in dialectics as a method of thinking, and of course in some weeks it was quicker than others. <laughs> That's how life is, yeah. And I began to examine the theoretical concepts. But I think I said that before. I don't accept the idea it was great in theory, but went wrong in practice. No, no. Okay, so, um, just to... To kind of bring it to a close, if you like. The, Why not? Um, <laughs> the, as I say, the, the, the premise of this whole project of mine was that I bought this, this T-shirt and I wanted to understand oh, yes. what it meant. Yeah. Um, so what does that symbol mean to you now? The, the symbol with the yeah, reefs, that's sweet reefs? Yeah, symbolising the unity of workers, peasants and intellectuals, or collective farmers, I should call them, cooperative farmers in the GDR. These terminologies. <laughs> collective the farmers in the Soviet Union, cooperative farmers in the GDR. <laughs> and the working intellectuals with their pair of compasses, because of engineering being so important. Yes, well, it means to me a great attempt to make a unified society. That's the first point including the word attempt, that the ideal was there, that we could make a unified society of workers, farmers and intellectuals, and everybody else for that matter. And then, of course, it means to me something that was very much on the surface and didn't really represent what people were really thinking and feeling. Some people deeply believed, and although I said some time ago, the PDS has changed and become, if you like, in simple language, much better. <laughs> All the same, there are very many older members of the PDS, as old as me, and I'm 75, who still hanker after the past. They still cannot accept that they were wrong. <laughs> That's putting it childishly. But they have difficulty analysing the mistakes that were made because they made them themselves. <laughs> the hardest mistakes to... To rectify, to, or to understand, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Um, so, thinking of, of me walking around in a, in a pub in Manchester, yeah. um, Manchester has completely transformed over the last... I've heard about it, years yeah. with, It's not really a cafe it's, bar society, but it's there's more pavement cafe type things. It would probably yeah. appear a very 
decadent place. I've heard about that, a city that has remade itself yes, or something. Yes, uh, Renaissance City yeah. or any of these phrases. But I mean, it was a pretty around, scruffy place as I remember it. Yeah, well, there are still areas like that. <laughs> I guess so. It's, it's been booming really for a while. Yeah. Um, the party headquarters used to be in Piccadilly, number 10, oh. right in the centre. But of course that became too expensive. And they had to move back to the suburbs. Yeah. So, but as a as a Western tourist here, or as a person in Manchester wearing this this T-shirt, do you think it kind of demeans what it stood for, or do you think it's kind of, in a way, it's right that this once proud heroic symbol is is now nothing but a kind of empty mm. icon? Another interesting question. I mean, if you go to certain parts of Berlin, you can buy all sorts of Soviet army, formerly Red Army, insignia, helmets and gloves and whatever you like, really, you can buy. And, of course, these have a certain value as souvenirs, if you will, of the past. There's a German word called kitsch, which means very low-level art. I think with all respect to people I now dislike as having misled us, that these parodies on the past are rather beneath human dignity. I don't think we should make fun of people just because they made mistakes. I would, you know, throw the whole lot away if it was left to me. I mean, museums, of course, are very important. I love to see the way the Roman soldiers used to walk around half the then civilised world. <laughs> But that's different, something in a museum. But I think marching up and down the street wearing such things is rather, I just said it, below our dignity. I mean, the T-shirt that I bought, for example, isn't... I'm not criticising you, of course. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I mean, even if you were, that's, that's fine. No, I understand your point. So, yeah. The T-shirt that I bought is... Um, it isn't an artefact of, of the East. It's... Uh, I expect it's made specifically for Oh, they're tourists. copies, yes, I'm sure. Copies. Probably made in Taiwan. Yeah, so, but that in itself says something. Nothing against Taiwan. <laughs> We're all very... Well, that has to be PC, <laughs> you know, politically correct at the end, yeah. I well, love Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> but it does mean that the, the power of that symbol, because it would have been... Absolutely. ...immensely power, powerful, oh. is running yeah. off a, a screen printer in Taiwan somewhere. Yeah, yeah, sure. And... And in a way, at the so. Stasi Museum, most of it has been left exactly as it was yes. when it was used as... Well, as that's that. right, of course. And, and you walk around it and you go through these meeting rooms and you know that mm. you get a sense of the power of that organisation. Yes. yes, But now it's a very, you know, not very well-funded museum. No. Very friendly staff. And you sit in the, what was the staff room canteen mm -hmm. um, and they bring you a neat little... Well, a nice little coffee by a very mm. polite woman. And I would have thought that someone who worked for the Stasi for any length of time, if they went back to there now, it would feel almost sad and tragic to see this one well, powerful creature, mm. a shadow of its former self. Good expression. It would bring tears to the eyes of many. Yeah. As I say, there are still those who are sentimental about the past. They do believe the idea was good, but we went a bit wrong, we made a few mistakes. And they would have wet eyes, I'm quite sure. Yeah. But I think, to rephrase what I said before, using these souvenirs and so on demeans the whole idea. 
So we show a bit of disrespect to those who were fighting for their ideals and also we don't come any nearer to understanding it. In a way, we preserve the nonsense if we wear a Soviet army cup or something. <laughs> yeah. But people don't take it seriously, do they? It's a bit of fun, I think. Like Prince Harry, who went to a party in Nazi uniform. <laughs> yeah, they become costumes rather than uniforms. That's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose that, just to finish off, is, is there anything that you wanted to, to add or anything that you felt that I was coming out from a, 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 the wrong direction or anything that you'd like to add to me? Well, of course, I could go on for a hundred hours, but we don't want that, do we? No, I'm very happy with the interview. Thank you very much indeed. If you'd like to learn more about the subjects covered in this episode, do visit our show notes, which we'll show as a link in your podcast app, or visit coldwarconversations.com. If you like what you're listening to, you can really help us by leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts, our Facebook page, or with your favorite podcast app. This really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners, just like you, continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod and Instagram where we are at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information